So uh, it's now someone, th this is a little uh, behind the scenes glimpse at something, but every week when Megan and I would uh, be in my office, uh, we would just record the, ser the sermon segment so I could again then go back and edit it. Um, but there were several times where I forgot to hit record. So then I'd have to go back later. And so I wrote myself this big note on the whiteboard that was behind it, which says, did you hit record? Um, so that's what we were waiting for, was for someone else to hit record this time. Uh, uh, we have been exploring a question that Jesus asked of his followers, a question that many struggled to answer, but the question was important. When Jesus says, who do you say I am? And on the surface, again, for us, this seems like, uh, like it's a pretty easy question to answer. I mean, it's Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's our Savior. And it sort of colors how we read the gospel stories, because when we read them, we sort of wonder why more people didn't come to understand who Jesus was right away. And we would like to think, I'm sure, that if we were there, we would have known who he was and immediately worshipped him. But as we look at the stories of the different people about where they came from, about what their ideas were, about what their lives were like, we see that the, the, the task of answering this question of who Jesus was was actually a really challenging one. So we see that the responses kind of varied all the way across the board. Some believe in Jesus immediately. Uh, some people, it took them a while to get there. Some people never got there. Some people believed that he was the embodiment of the love of God, while others believed that he was going to undo everything that God had ever been about. And, and it's important, I think, for us to take a look at all of these different people because, again, we tend to treat this question as an easy question. Who is Jesus? But we are seeing, I think, that that the answer to this is so complicated and more complicated than I think we want to believe that it is. So we, we've looked at John the Baptist who knew who Jesus was but struggled to believe when his life went in an unexpected direction. And so he had to learn that what God was doing in the world through Jesus was bigger than what God was doing through John. The, the Pharisees, they were threatened by Jesus, and their response to the challenges that Jesus laid before them was fear and anger. They saw Jesus as a problem that had to be taken care of so that they could go back to life as usual. And in them, we see reflected this hard truth that when we think we know what God is all about and we encounter something that challenges that view, even if it comes from Jesus himself, then we are thrown into crisis. And when we are thrown into a crisis, particularly over our faith, we become defensive and angry. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, but he was able to get past uh, his defensiveness and see that Jesus had power, wisdom, and authority that could only come from God. But Nicodemus still had to have eyes to see and ears to hear. He had to do the hard work of overcoming his background and everything he knew God was about to see this new thing that God was doing. So I will say it again. It's what I told you the very first week that we started this series. Jesus was complex, unconventional, and controversial. There was very little about him that was easy to understand or easy to swallow. And even those closest to him struggled with his identity and what he was about. 
And we see very clearly that the apostles, though they were with him all the time for three years, that they grasped the significance of Jesus, but they did not grasp the path that Jesus was on and what it was that God was really trying to do through him. So what does this teach us? If we look at all of these different people, if we look at their reactions and their responses, what does this show us? It shows us that while people could grasp some part of who Jesus was, they could barely grasp the full scope of what God was doing through him. And they often ran up against either their own desires, their own expectations of what God should be doing in the world. And this is the crisis that we've seen over and over again, isn't it? That when what they want to have happen or what they think should happen butts up against what God says is going to happen, they have to wrestle with who they are going to listen to and what they are going to believe. Now, interestingly enough, this was not just true of earthly figures. There is one more figure that I want us to look at this morning, and that figure is Satan. Who or what is Satan? Uh, I had a conversation recently with a friend who is Catholic, and uh, he was very curious when I told him that I was going to be preaching a sermon about Satan. And uh, he sort of went over a little bit some of the, his background with what they, they teach about Satan in the Catholic Church. But it kind of came ba- down to this base question. He's like, do you really think that Satan makes people do things? I was like, well, man, that's a loaded question. Like, <laughs> I mean, w- w- what do you mean? And, and he says, well, I, I think, he said, that, that people are just bad. And so... When people do bad things, it's not Satan making them do these bad things. It's just their own human nature that's rising up and and causing them to do something evil. So Satan, he says, doesn't really influence us. It's just us being bad. So I explained to him what the Gospels say about Satan and about the role that he plays, but he was still pretty dubious. And for good reason. Satan as, or the devil, as a figure has generated lots of ideas and theories about who he is or what he does. He's even become uh, a figure in popular culture, uh, where he's appeared in movies, TV shows, books, and songs. But is he real, and what does he do? This is a question that we kind of want to know. So the sermon this morning, I want you to know, is not going to answer every question that you have about Satan, all right? Uh, That would be a waste of time for us to try to explore Satan into that much detail. But it will be a really quick crash course that will answer some of the most basic questions about him. And you're probably going to learn some things you didn't know. I know that I learned some things I wasn't aware of. So the Hebrew word for Satan means to oppose, obstruct, or accuse. And the word Satan occurs... Uh, as a noun at various points in the Old Testament to designate a human opponent. So it is translated in English Bibles as adversary or enemy. And so when used as a noun, the word Satan does not refer to a specific figure, but can refer to any enemy or adversary or someone who would stand against you. And there are lots of examples of this from 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings 5.4, some different verses there. 
Uh, when used as a verb, because it was also a verb and not just a noun, it means to oppose as an adversary. Uh, so someone could be your Satan, which means they would be your adversary. Uh, Satan as a figure, um, and not just as an accuser, is found uh, only three places in the Old Testament. Okay? The story of Job, Zechariah 3, and 1 Chronicles 21. Now, in the first two instances, Job and Zechariah, Satan is depicted as sort of part of God's court, whose basic duty it was to accuse human beings before God. He does not seem to be, at this point, an enemy of God and the leader of the demonic forces of evil as he is later depicted. And if you have read the story of Job, that might kind of ring a bell for you because it seems like God is there in his courts with all of the angels and Satan is just there. And what does he do? He goes to God and he accuses Job. You know, oh sure, Job is your servant, but that's only because of this and that. And then he goes about the work of trying to prove that Job is not really his servant. Another interesting thing, there does not appear to be any evidence in the Hebrew Bible that the serpent in Genesis 2 and 3 was Satan or even a creature under the direction of Satan. We have just over time accepted that because he plays this role of adversary and tempter that he is, the snake is Satan. The Hebrews, the, Israel, the Israelites, they didn't really have a developed sense of who Satan was until they went away to exile and then they came back. So sometime around 200 BC, around this time, you start to see a development of the idea of Satan and who Satan is, which we see carry over into the New Testament. And it is at this time in writings that didn't make it into the Bible, but that represent Hebrew thinking at the time, that a figure first appeared who is clearly an archenemy of God and humanity. Okay, still with me? Yeah? Okay, good. This takes us to the New Testament. Satan in the New Testament uh, is a much more developed character and idea. Um, the Greek term uh, literally means adversary. And in the New Testament, it refers to a title or a name, which is Satan. Uh, it can also be uh, rendered as Diabolos in, this, in the Greek New Testament. Uh, so in the New Testament, the word devil is used 32 times. Satan is used 33 times. Belial, another name, is used once. And Beelzebul is used seven times. So already we see that in the New Testament, the idea of Satan, this, this force, is very, very much more present than it is at any point in the Old Testament. Uh, not only that, but Satan plays a significant role in what happened in the life and ministry of Jesus, which is what we want to focus on today. Satan was the adversary of Jesus. He was in direct conflict with Jesus, working behind the scenes to oppose and undo God's plan. But there is a huge question that we need to ask, and I want to get this question in your minds right now uh, as we start thinking about Satan, and that is this. Did Satan really understand 
who Jesus was or what God was trying to do through Jesus. Who did Satan say that Jesus was? So we have three main stories that give us some input into his role and what was going on uh, there in the life of Jesus. So first off, Satan directly controlled Jesus, or I'm sorry, confronted Jesus in an effort to turn him from the path that God the Father wanted him to take. And we see this in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point in the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Okay, so Jesus was uh, baptized by John. The Holy Spirit came upon him, and what did the Holy Spirit declare? This is my son with whom I am well pleased. So, so God has put his seal of Jesus' identity onto Jesus, says this who he is. And at that point, the Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness. So what happened when Jesus was in the wilderness? Well, we know that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, which is a really long time. But what was he doing while he was fasting during those 40 days and 40 nights? We don't know exactly, but we can deduce some things. And the most simple deduction is that Jesus was connecting with God before he went out to start his public ministry in the world. Because if you remember, at this point, he hasn't really done anything. And he's about to go out and call disciples and begin to teach. And we have to remember what Jesus says about himself in John 5, where he says, Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. So if Jesus is in the desert fasting and connecting with God, what are they connecting about? That's taking 40 days for them to do. Well, again, we don't know for sure, but we can sort of deduce that they are talking about what Jesus' life and ministry is going to be like, what the purpose of the kingdom is, and how it should be lived out here on earth. That God was instructing Jesus on what he was to do and all that was to come. So it's after this 40 days and 40 nights of fasting that Satan approached Jesus to begin to tempt him. Why did he come at the end of 40 days and 40 nights? Well, we're told it's because Jesus was hungry. Which means what? That he's susceptible now 
to some sort of temptation. And so he tempts him to turn the rocks into bread. And this uh, sort of the way he phrases it and the way he puts it, if you want to look back there, um, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So what is he challenging here? He's not challenging whether or not Jesus can turn the stones into bread. He's challenging whether Jesus is or isn't the son of God. So it addresses this matter. And Satan is projecting that perhaps if Jesus is the son, that he could be persuaded to act independently of the father. So Satan's test was subtle for Jesus. Since Jesus is the son of God, he does have the power to turn the stones all around him into bread. So it wouldn't have been a big deal, right? Except for one reason. If he were to do it, it would have gone against the will of the father for him because the father intended for him to be in the wilderness fasting and praying. So to submit to Satan's suggestion to satisfy his hunger would have been against the will of God. And Jesus doesn't fall for it. What does he say? It is God who feeds me, basically. The second test pertained to a personal display of power, authority, and self-importance. He takes him to the top of the temple. Throw yourself off the temple. Surely the angels will catch you because God has said this would happen. And I find that this test is even more subtle because, number one, he uses Scripture to make his case. Satan does. But he is, again, sort of appealing to Jesus' sense of who he is. Jesus, you are so important that if you were to throw yourself off of here, no one would even let your foot strike the ground. Show us how important you are. And Jesus again replied with scripture, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now the last one is just as bad because the last one is a shortcut. And this is why I think um, during these 40 days of fasting that there was a lot of conversation between Jesus and the Father about the cross and the resurrection. Because Satan basically says to Jesus on this last one, you can have your kingdom now if you'll worship me. Meaning, if he were to worship Satan, he could skip the cross. He could skip the suffering. He could skip all of those things. And he could have a kingdom now. Jesus had spent all of this time with God. He, he knew that his death was a huge part of the plan to bring about the kingdom, and Satan offered him a chance to have all of the glory without any of the suffering, and all he had to do was bow one time. And Jesus, of course, refused. Okay, so what was Satan's objective? What was he trying to do? Satan believed that he could influence Jesus to go against the will of the Father. And he tried three different ways, avenues, to make that happen. And this, again, is consistent with what we know of Satan. I mean, we see this in the story of Job even a little bit, even though the figure is very different. God has relationship with Job. And what is Satan's goal in the story of Job? To turn Job away from God. And so he takes everything away from Job. And when that doesn't work, well, let me hurt Job. And if I hurt Job, then that will turn him away from God. 
Satan wanted to turn Jesus away from God. He wanted Jesus to ignore God's plan and to take things into his own hands. And he believed he could do this by appealing to Jesus' sense of self, his value and his identity. If you are the son of God, then why are you doing all of this when you could be doing this instead? Could he get Jesus to take things that were maybe even rightfully his, but which the Father had not yet given him? Could he offer Jesus an easier path? And by getting Jesus to accept that path, turn Jesus away from the will of the Father. But Jesus, in this case, stays true to the Father. He refused to undo what God was doing through him. But Satan is not done trying to influence Jesus. We see it happen again in Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23, a passage that we looked at last week. Peter has just declared that Jesus is the Messiah, and so it says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So here we see that Jesus has explained and voiced to his disciples all that must happen. The plan is for Jesus to suffer, to die, and to be raised to life again. And this plan was not one that Peter could wrap his mind around. It was too difficult for him to understand. I mean, we don't even know that Peter heard the last part of being raised again. He gets stuck on this suffering and dying thing. And so he decides that he is going to rebuke Jesus for saying that he would have to suffer and die. Surely, Lord, no, this is not going to happen to you. Now, this argument sounds an awful lot like at least temptations two and three in the wilderness. You are too important to have to suffer and die. You will have glory, but you don't need all of this stuff. So again, it appeals to Jesus' sense of who he is and the importance of who he is. And Jesus turns to Peter and directly addresses him as Satan. He, He addresses Satan in this moment who was seeking to use Peter as his instrument to do what? What did Satan want? to influence Jesus, to turn away from the plan that God had for him. Maybe Jesus would be swayed by one of his closest followers. This argument, Jesus says, was meant to be a stumbling block for him. It was meant to be something that would trip him up. You know what? You're right. This doesn't need to happen to me. I'm the son of God for crying out loud. Peter was trying to keep the Lord from dying, but that was one of the main reasons why Jesus came into this world, was to die. So Jesus points out that Peter had in mind the things of men and and not the things of God. I I don't think this was an idea, I mean, that, that Satan planted in Peter's mind. 
I think Peter already believed this was an impossibility. But Satan got him to speak it out loud to Jesus, to try to influence Jesus in any way he could. And Jesus says, you're thinking like a man, you're not thinking like God. Jesus understood what God was doing. He knew God's plan, and he wouldn't let Satan turn him from following God. Now, it's at this point in the story that Satan's role becomes something hard to understand. Because Satan has now been unsuccessful at changing Jesus' mind or influencing him to turn away from the plan of God. So he now sets himself toward bringing about an end to Jesus. And you see it in two different passages from Luke 22, verses 1 through 6. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. And in John chapter 13, you see another telling of this where Satan enters Judas as they were all sitting around the table at the Last Supper. And then Judas immediately left to betray Jesus. Okay. So if the question that we're trying to answer is, which is the question we've been asking of everyone so far, is does, G- does Satan, did Satan really understand who Jesus was and what was going on? Satan had been trying to influence Jesus to turn away from God and the kingdom, and that didn't work. So he decided to bring about an end to all things Jesus. And so the only thing, again, we can speculate and read here, but there are some gaps that we obviously can't fill in. Satan believed we have to think that the death of Jesus would stop whatever it was that God was trying to do. So we enter Judas, and Judas in turn betrays Jesus to those who had the power and influence to send Jesus to the cross, and all would be finished and Jesus would be gone. But you see the problem, right? Satan's actions helped to bring about the ending that Jesus had been moving toward all along. Jesus was always going to go to the cross. Jesus was always going to die which tells us that Satan may have understood who Jesus was, but he didn't understand what God was doing. We don't really know. Would he have acted to bring about the death of Jesus if he knew that his death would lead to the resurrection? We don't really know, but we can be sure about this. If Jesus would not turn from God, then the cross was exactly the ending that Satan would have wanted for his enemy. Satan the accuser wanted Jesus to stand trial. Delighting in the Son of God being torn down by sinful humans and accused an innocent man of doing things that he had never done. Satan the adversary wanted to see his enemy defeated and humiliated. Just like we saw in the book of Job, where he kept looking for ways to push further and further to break Job. 
Satan delighted in tearing down Job's life in an effort to prove that he didn't really belong to God. And the cross is the ugliest way to destroy your enemy. It was an implement of torture and death. The worst thing that one human could do to another, the cross was a message to all enemies, all enemies of Rome, that this is what you get if you fight the earthly powers. The cross was the end. It was all of those things until it wasn't. And perhaps what we take from this character, this force that works against God, that tries to pull God's people from him, that tries to even turn Jesus from God, is that there is great hope in knowing that the adversary cannot stop what God is doing. The adversary cannot stop what God is doing. And perhaps the issue was not so much that Satan didn't understand who Jesus was. Perhaps the issue was that he thought he could win, you see. He believed he could turn Jesus. He believed he could disrupt the plans of God. And if he couldn't convince Jesus to do it himself, then he would kill him. Because death was the undefeated enemy of God. And why would he think this? Well, he had been disrupting God and his relationship with his people for years. But we see clearly that the enemy cannot stand against the kingdom. He cannot stand against the Father and the Son and the Spirit. He cannot stand against the coming salvation. For while it looks like the cross is a win for Satan, it is anything but that. It is the mode of his own destruction. In fact, God used him. Just like he used those who would stand against what he wanted to do in the world to bring about his salvation. Who, Jesus asked, do you say I am? And it's the beautiful mystery, not of who Jesus is, but of God's plan, of all that he accomplishes through Jesus. That brings into clear focus who he is, the Son of God, the Messiah, the crucified one, all of which leads us to the final pieces of Jesus' identity, that he is risen Lord and our Savior. Amen? Let's pray together. Holy Father, we are so grateful that no enemy can stand against you. We are grateful that no adversary can change the redemptive work that you want to do in this world. God, we celebrate that you have overcome all that would stand against us, that your son chose to go to the cross, taking our sin, taking our shame, taking all that we are so that we might have life with you, that we might be made new. We are grateful for this gift. And God, this morning as we take communion together, as we eat this bread and we drink from this cup, Father, we recognize that Jesus went to the cross for us, that Jesus suffered and died for us, 
that Jesus rose from the grave for us. Thank you, God, for loving us in this way, for bringing our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.